The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we have been going through the book of Acts as a church, 28 chapters. We started at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. We've been going all the way through. Now we're all the way in chapter 23, and we are actually going to finish, Lord willing, uh, chapter 23 today. So we're, we're nearing the climax and the end of that wonderful book, which is really a history of how the church of Christ started. So we'll be in Acts chapter 23. We're in the middle of a ministry of the Apostle Paul as God's been, how God's been working through him over the course of 20 years as recounted in the book of, the book of Acts, nearing towards the end of his ministry where he's been imprisoned. So that's what we're going to pick up in just a second. Actually, he's currently a prisoner and his crime, his crime, believing in Jesus. That's his crime, really. And even worse, telling others about Jesus. That's his crime. A crime that prompted many to almost beat him literally to death in public, spontaneously, in a mob, flash mob. That just We just saw that a couple weeks ago. That's his crime, believing in Jesus. That's still a crime today, many places in the world. Technically, on the books, legally, it's not a crime here in America to believe in Jesus. But it is a crime for Christians in the eyes of many to publicize their faith. Whether it's in a public school, at the workplace. So we're, we're getting there. But there are places in the world today you can lose your life. You put your life on the line if you follow Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul is enduring for us is an exemplary Christian, one of the first faithful Christians. But in Philippians chapter 3, let's go ahead and look here. Paul wrote this epistle, very short epistle. We saw in Acts chapter 16 where he went into that church and met people and then preached the gospel and people responded positively and believed and became Christians. And then he nurtured them and tried to disciple them and teach them more revelation of God and then established a church. Uh, But there were a lot of people in Philippi that didn't like what Paul had to say, and they got mad at him. They rejected him. They mocked him, and then eventually they turned on him, tried to kill him, and then ended up having him arrested. And the civil authorities beat him to a bloody pulp with long sticks without a trial, without hearing his testimony. And they threw him in prison for a short time. So that was in Acts 16. So Philippians is the, this church that he's writing to. Is, he was there for a little while, and then they basically said, you've got to leave town now. Get out of here. And he did leave town. But he still loved that church. He loved those people, those new Christians. So he wanted to encourage them in their faith, and so that's why he wrote Philippians. And, and the Christians in Philippi were very loving, faithful, dedicated, probably persecuted Christians in many ways. But one thing that Paul does... In Philippians 3, he kind of gives his testimony of how he used to be a zealous Jew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he was exemplary among the Jews before he got saved. And he was a rising star, really, in terms of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership of that day around Jerusalem. And he was a Christian killer. He persecuted and hated Christians. But then he gave his life to Christ, or actually Christ found him 
and changed him. And then he became a Christian, not only a Christian, but he became an apostle. And so Paul's reflecting on that, and he's talking about how dramatically Jesus changed his life. It was dramatic. It was radical. That's what Jesus does. When you truly become born again, God changes you. He doesn't make you practically perfect because we have sin living in us, but he definitely changes our nature, our desires, our longings, our loyalties, the inside, what really matters, our spirit, our heart, our goals, our aspirations, our worldview, how we perceive the world. This is what changed with Paul, radical transformation. And it came at a cost. It came at great sacrifice. Paul's not a whiner. He doesn't complain about it, but at times he does state the facts. Here's what it cost me to become a Christian. So that's the context of Philippians 3. One of the things that it cost Paul to become a Christian, because he was such an influential, respected, rising, aspiring Jew among the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership, was it cost him his reputation in that society with those Jews. When he became a Christian, as a matter of fact, he... He abandoned his legalistic Judaism when he embraced Jesus Christ. And so all the Jews that were unbelieving, they turned on Paul immediately. Uh, Those who used to be his buddies and commiserate with him around the Sanhedrin, things they had in common as a rabbi in the synagogue, around the law, they immediately turned on him. And now he was the enemy and they wanted nothing to do with him but this was there was also a, a personal sacrifice for Paul with respect to his family he grew up in a jewish home probably a very uh, legalistic yet committed and zealous jewish home from things we know about the apostle paul raised in the synagogue his parents were so committed to judaism they somehow were able to pay the bill to have him sent to jerusalem to be trained under the great gamaliel who was the most respected jewish rabbi of that day and that's the the privileged training that the apostle paul got with a very no doubt tight-knit family around their judaistic faith but when paul became a christian his family abandoned him that was just standard he would become unsynagogue legally removed from the synagogue and all of its privileges many times they put you on the blacklist but also his family would consider him dead paul has turned to this false messiah this jesus He's turned to a false prophet, the one that was crucified, the one accursed by God. We want nothing to do with him. He's officially out of our family. He's officially not a part of our family. He's officially dead to us. Cut off all communication, all relations. This is Matthew 10 being fulfilled when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword or division. And if you follow me, then the members of your own family will become your enemies. They will turn on you because of your love for Christ. And that's what happened to Paul. So that's why in all these accounts and so much information, we never hear anything about Paul's family. I mean, he says that he wasn't married during his ministry. We don't know anything. Here's a hint about his family in Philippians 3.8, the verse I wanted to read. More than that, all the things that... That I have given up for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. There it is. I have suffered the loss of all things by becoming a Christian. I have lost my immediate family by by becoming a Christian. Some of you are in that situation. Or you've seen it happen. I saw it happen when I got saved in college. 
And I had a large family. Pretty much the entire family wanted nothing to do with me because of my love for Christ and Jesus. And many of you have experienced or are even experiencing that very thing. And that's this could be one of the things Paul's talking about. Uh, I value so much knowing Christ, I've, but I've lost everything, and that's okay, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And if, if it cost me my relationship with my mom and dad and they don't respect me anymore, if it cost me the close relationship I had with my siblings and they consider me dead now, so be it. My true brothers and sisters are those fellow Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things. I want to emphasize that, that Paul suffered the loss of family relationships when he became a Christian. And then there's one little verse that kind of crops up in our story today that's very intriguing with a lot of mystery, but I wanted that at least to be in the background. So let's go ahead and flip now to Acts chapter 23. If you have a bulletin there, we put an outline for you to to follow as we walk through the narrative. I came up with three points there that uh, will take us through this passage. The theme overriding these verses from 11 to 35 is the plot to kill Paul, the apostle. Remember his crime is loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, and wanting to preach about Jesus, wanting to be obedient to God, the creator of the universe, and the judge. That's his crime. To do the right thing, that's his crime. That's what he's guilty of, of doing the right thing. And there is a plot for his life. It's ongoing. It's continual. It's been going on ever since he started ministry. This is into decade number three of people trying to snuff out his life, of kill Paul. So we just saw chapter 21, 22. We saw where he got arrested. He was in the temple. He's falsely accused publicly. The crowd comes in. They pull him out of the temple area, take him into the court of the Gentiles, beat him almost to death. Huge, massive crowd of Jews falsely accusing him, saying he doesn't believe in the Old Testament. He rejects Moses, which was not true. And then the Romans come down. They intervene. A chiliarch, he was called. He was a Roman commander over a 1,000 troops right there, lived in a tower that was right next to the temple, had quick access. Probably had a 1,000 soldiers, by the way, in that, in the barracks close by. 1,000 Roman soldiers, fully armed. So the Roman soldier intervenes, uh, squelches the, the mob, gets Paul, has him pretty much arrested. They're going to take him away to the barracks. Paul's allowed to speak. He speaks to the mob, to the crowd. They quiet down. They listen for a moment. Gives his testimony, how he got converted. He used to be a Jew. Then he became a Christian. Then he met Jesus appeared to him. Jesus, who was crucified, actually appeared to him, commissioned him and said, go to the Gentiles. And then the mob just went crazy. And they erupted again and they wanted to kill him. So then the Roman uh, soldier intervenes again and says, get Paul into the barracks. And they take Paul away. And then the Roman commander, he is frustrated. What in the world? Why are you infuriating this crowd so easily and so to such a fever pitch? Who are you? What is what have you done? I'm going to find out. I haven't gotten any answers. So I'm going to I'm going to scourge Paul. And so that's what the Roman soldier wanted to do or the chiliarch. And so they tore his clothes off and were about to beat him to a bloody pulp. And then he said, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. And they said, whoa, you're a Roman citizen. And they agreed. That's illegitimate. We can't do this to a Roman citizen. And so. They let him go, and then the Roman commander took him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court or uh, supreme court, and that's what we saw last week, where Paul was before 71 probably of the Sanhedrin, made up mostly of Sadducees, but also some Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. 
and they begin the trial. And the first thing out of the gate, Paul makes a comment. And then the high priest, the Supreme Court justice who's in charge, has Paul punched in the face. That's how they began court. And then Paul has a very short testimony and says, you know what, I am, I am on trial for being a Pharisee because I believe in the resurrection. And then the, and then the uh, Sanhedrin just erupted because Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. And then they began going after each other. And it just became a, tolma- a tumult and totally ab- uh, chaos. And they actually, it says they got very angry. So they're getting angry at each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. But also the Sadducees are probably turning their anger towards Paul. And his life is threatened in the middle of this trial. And so the, the Roman commander sees this and he intervened. He got scared. For Paul's life. So he immediately intervenes, takes Paul away, whisks him away back into the Roman barracks. And then now the commander has to think, now what am I going to do? Paul almost just got killed again. And he's a Roman citizen. And if he gets killed, I am in trouble. So that's where we are. So let's go ahead and look at uh, as this saga continues, real life story in the life of the Apostle Paul. The plot to kill the Apostle Paul. Three points are the first point is the, the evil conspiracy and that is the Jews' plot to kill Paul, verses 11 to 15. The evil conspiracy. I'll pick up at verse 11, which we hinted at or we read a little bit last week. So Paul has this trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and he's standing there, and he gets punched in the face. And then he says, I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection, which is in the Old Testament, by the way. And then the, Jew, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees go after each other, and then probably the Sadducees turn on Paul about to take his life. And then the Roman commander takes Paul, puts him in the barracks. Paul's probably thrown into some kind of isolation. He has some freedom because he's a Roman citizen, but they have quarantined him. Number one, so that he wouldn't be harassed or murdered by anybody. And at the same time, it could be that he's confined all by himself. If you remember when he was in Philippi, he was arrested with his good friend and fellow partner in ministry. And so at least it was the two of them together. And they sang hymns together. And they, they got beat up. They were arrested at nighttime. And they started singing together and encouraging one another. And you can do that. Paul has no one to encourage him right now on a human level. He is by himself. He's probably in shock. He's still uh, suffering from having been beat up almost to death from the crowd and then punched in the face. And he's still he's received no justice up to this point. His goal and his heart's desire was to go to Rome for Jesus. And it could be that he's thinking, My, it's over. It's over. It's, it's premature and over. I don't get to go to Rome. I don't get to speak to the, the heart of the Roman Empire on behalf of the Lord Jesus like I so much long to do. And it's all going to end here and receiving no justice. There's nobody here to help me or intervene. Even the Jews who believed didn't intervene in a way to save Paul's life that day. He's in the custody of pagan Roman soldiers. Paul was human. He was finite. He was a sinner just like us. So he was probably overwhelmed with emotion of discouragement. Hopelessness. We know that from the context because he's sitting there in custody and then all of a sudden the Lord Jesus in his grace decides to come down and give Paul a personal visit. It's amazing. This is the sixth time or this is one of six times the Lord Jesus uh, comes to the Apostle Paul either personally or in a vision directly. And look at verse 11. It's amazing. On that night, so after all this happened and he's beat up and he's thrown into prison, he's in custody, he's being isolated, probably greatly discouraged. He says, but on that night, immediately following the Lord, that's Jesus himself, who's at the right hand of the Father. Jesus comes down from heaven and stood 
at his side. So this is pretty graphic. He literally came. It's not just a vision that he saw in a distance. The Lord Jesus himself stood by Paul's side and overshadowed him as the majestic risen Lord. How encouraging is that? Stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. How, how encouraging and reassuring for Paul. Because his heart's desire was to go to Rome. That was kind of, man, I'm going to finish the course by going to Rome. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows our minds. He knows our desires. He knows Paul. And the one area where Paul needed encouragement, he gave it to him. You know what? You're going to make it to Rome. You're going to make it to Rome. You're going to represent me. This is awesome. This was needed in Paul's life. Second Corinthians chapter one talks about how incredibly distressed and depressed Paul got at times in ministry where he was despairing even of life itself. You ever been that way? Maybe some of you are like that today or were this week. Overcome with trials, depression, sadness, frustration, hopelessness. That is exactly what Paul had. Second Corinthians chapter one. That is exactly what Jesus knew Paul had. And that's why he comes to encourage him. And it worked because from here on out, Paul's amazing what he's going to be subjected to. He continually remains in chains unjustly, unfair trial after unfair trial, abuse after abuse, false accusation after false accusation. Uh, He goes across the Mediterranean Sea as a prisoner. The ship gets destroyed. They're about to die. And Paul is totally calm, supernaturally so. Why? Because he was encouraged by the the Lord Jesus himself who made a promise. You are going to make it to Rome. You're not going to die. So this was a wonderful, unique blessing from Jesus. Jesus only did this to the apostles, by the way, these appearances at this point in the early church, according to the Bible. He did it to Peter. Occasional, limited, rare occasions where Jesus came from heaven, either through a vision or personally to encourage Peter or give him divine revelation. He did it to John. Later on in the 90s, 95 AD, when Jesus appeared to John the Apostle, when he was an old man and a prisoner, and gave him revelation, divine revelation from heaven, heaven that became the book of Revelation. And he did it six times with the Apostle Paul during the course of his ministry. We have no record of Jesus doing this to just all kinds of different people all the time, just regular old Christians. That's just the historical account. So look, looking in more detail at the conspiracy that's developed here. Verse 11, so on that night... Uh, Jesus comes, encourages him. Then the next day, verse 12, and when it was day, so Paul, wow, was that a dream? That was real. Wow, the Lord Jesus Christ came to visit me. This is awesome. While that's going on, the Jews formed a conspiracy. That's what the word means, conspiracy. A secret, conniving behind the scenes, whispering in a corner, developing a very specific plan, uh, flowing out of a heart of utter hatred. Hatred. These Jews. Hatred for Paul. But really, it's not hatred for Paul. It's hate for Jesus, because that's what Jesus told Paul. When Paul was confronted by Jesus, Jesus said, when Paul was Saul and a Christian hater, Jesus didn't say, uh, why are you persecuting the Christians? Jesus said to Saul, why do you persecute me? So when someone persecutes a Christian, they are first and foremost persecuting Jesus. It's good to know. That's comforting for us. We represent him. He literally feels our pain. So they are conspiring against Paul, who represents Jesus. 
they bound themselves under an oath. They bound the Greek word that's used twice in this passage, anathema, anathema. They anathematized, say that five times really fast. They anathematized themselves, meaning they, they, they called the judgment of God from heaven upon their head to kill them if they do not fulfill this vow. And they will not eat or drink until it is fulfilled. We are not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. And if we are not successful, may God strike us dead. That's what they're vowing. That's what anathematize means. Very serious. Committed to the cause, bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat or drink until they had killed Paul. What kind of... This just shows you the darkness of the human soul. The sinfulness of man. We, we hear from the world, oh, people are born good. Oh, people at worst, they're born neutral. Blank slate. And people get messed up because of society. People aren't born messed up. They get messed up by other people. They get messed up by oh, their parents. Their parents messed up. It's their parents' fault. And society and their educators and the police and all authorities and the authority structures. That's why people are messed up. That's why teenagers do what they do. That's why teenagers go out and shoot and kill people. It's not their fault. That's the view of the world. That is not the view of the Bible. The Bible is very honest, very clear. Human beings are born wicked, separated from God, enemies of God. They need to be born again. They are filled with utter, the seeds of utter rage, hatred, murder. Every conceivable wicked, evil sin is in seed form in every person that's born into this world. That's what the Bible says. And here you see it coming to fruition. In their plans to murder the greatest, most wonderful, humble, blessed servant that God had gifted to planet Earth in that day. How ironic, how messed up, how twisted and distorted, how perverted. That's what sin does. Sin distorts and twists and perverts thinking. And they want to kill him. Well, how, who was involved in this? Is this the Sanhedrin that just got mad at him and punched him in the face? Is this... Uh, who's doing this? Who's spearheading this? Is this the Asian Jews that made the false accusation in the first place? Well, 13. All it says is there were more than 40 of these Jews who formed this plot. More than 40 signed on. You've got to get a petition going. Probably just a small core of guys, and they got the petition going. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that. That Paul guy, shut him down. So you got about 40. They seem to be independent uh, from the Sanhedrin because, verse 14... So these 40 who are committed to the cause, more than 40 of them, they came to the chief priests and the elders. Who were the chief priests and the elders? The chief priests were probably part of the Sanhedrin, the 71 Supreme Court justices. The chief priests and the elders, they were probably the Sadducee party. Because they probably heard or they either saw, witnessed themselves or heard about how the trial went. And how the Pharisees were saying, hey, this man's fine. Paul, he didn't do anything wrong. He's innocent. God could have appeared to him in a vision. And then they saw how the Sadducees reacted. They don't believe in the resurrection. They think this guy is a false prophet, deserves death. And so they realize, oh, we have a friend in the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. It was the Sadducees who punched Paul in the face. So they hate him too. So they're manipulating this hatred. verse 14 and they came to the chief priests and the elders and they said and then by the way they go to the right authority the chief priests were the authority we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath 
to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. This is a little risky too. telling the authorities what you're going to we're going to commit murder. You want to help us? I hope so. Here's our plan. Verse 15. Now, therefore, you and the council, you and the Sanhedrin. Notify the commander, the Chiliarch, the Roman guy in charge, to bring Paul down from the barracks where he's being protected down to you, to the Sanhedrin, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. As though, so make it up. Pretend, let's pretend we're going to have another trial and tell the Roman soldier to bring him down. And as they're bringing him down, and we, for our part, we are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So they probably had to come down from the uh, Roman Aunt Fort Antonio and go through all kinds of tunnels and walls and whatever and a maze. And they, they've got it down. They know where the places are to cut them off at the pass. Got all these narrow tunnels. Because yet, 200 Roman soldiers can't fit in a narrow tunnel. So they know where to cut them off. They know the path of how to get there. They got it all planned. So that is the conspiracy that the Jews plot to kill Paul. Well, God is aware of this plan. Look at verse 2, and that's uh, human evil is great, but God's power is even greater. And there's evidence of that here at verse 2. The providential inquiry, Paul's nephew, inquiry, um, God providentially, providence is when God intervenes through secondhand circumstances in the normal causes of life. Uh, Providence, it should be next to miraculous or supernatural. God intervenes supernaturally and miraculously and immediately sometimes, like through a miracle. Moses uh, parts the Red Sea. That's a miraculous, supernatural, immediate intervention. Providence, God's providence is different. When God operates providentially, you don't see a miracle the way you saw an immediate, spontaneous, supernatural intervening of the laws of nature. Providence is different. Providence is where God is behind the scenes masterminding all the possible variables in all of history and putting them together in such a way that everything is going to happen and fall through perfectly just as he planned as he provides for the word provide is in the word providential as he provides for his own takes care of his own is good to his own at the same time fulfilling his plan all for his glory it is amazing Only an omniscient, all-powerful, sovereign God could do this, intervene in human affairs through providence, making things happen exactly the way they need to happen. And also, providence does not violate anybody's human will or responsibility in the choices that they make. One of the greatest Old Testament examples of God moving through providence is when Joseph, who at age 17, was beat up by his brothers in the book of Genesis, thrown in a pit, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. But then they sold him off as a slave, And then the Midianites pick him up and then they take him away down to Egypt and he becomes a prisoner. And he's basically in jail from age 17 to age 30. And then finally he finds favor with Pharaoh and those in charge. And he they elevate him to responsibility and power. To the point where he's second to the king. And Joseph, who got beat up by his brothers and was a slave, over the course of 17 years, basically becomes vice regent in the land of all the empire of of Egypt with authority. And then his older brothers come to town years later, over a decade later, and they're looking for food, and they have to contend with and deal with their brother that they almost killed, and he has all authority over them. And then eventually at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph becomes the protector and provider of his 
older brothers who tried to kill him as he allows them to come to safe land in the land of Goshen. It's an amazing story. It's true. And then Joseph makes that statement, you meant it for evil because they're crying and they feel all guilty. Don't kill us because they knew they tried to kill him and he figured it out. And now he's got all the power and he can have them killed. So they're a bunch of sissies and wimps and they're crying. Don't kill us. And Joseph, a man of God, he says, don't be afraid. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That, that is providence. In other words, God was in charge the entire time. Simeon, Reuben, the older brothers, they're making evil, wicked, terrible decisions, acting accordingly. They're responsible for their actions, while at the same time, somehow, God knows this. He's in charge. He's controlling it all. With one of the goals being Joseph's good and the good of the brothers who tried to kill him at the end. That's how God works. And God has been operating through providence, his good providence, uh, every day of our lives, whether you recognize it or not. God's good providence is happening all of the time. That's why Romans 8, 28 is true for the Christian. God works all things together for good to those who know God, who, or who love God. That's God's providence at work. So if you've got horrible, terrible things going on in your life or just a lousy, pathetic last week, God knew about it. He knew it was going to happen. It's totally, he is still on the throne. He has a plan. All of your mistakes, all of your trials, frustrations, cry, uh, crying and tears, they are all perfectly going to fit into, they do fit in perfectly to God's plan. We just don't see the immediate outcome. We will, with time, see the outcome, outcome many times. Wow, God's master hand through providence. That is amazing. Thank you, Lord. I should have trusted you. I didn't. Forgive me. So God is continually moving through his providence. So when people say, oh, so you don't believe God does miracles? I think God miraculously moving through providence is, it is amazing. Only God could do that. And so that's what he's going to do here. So look at verse 16. So they make this plot, verse 16. But the son, just out of nowhere, Luke says, oh, by the way, but the son of Paul's sister. But by the way, Paul's nephew, who we've never met before, didn't know he had a nephew, didn't know he had a sister. There are all kinds of things that Luke says here, and he just refuses to give us the details. He's just kind of tantalizing us and making us very interested. Tell me more. Tell me more. Sorry. Just matter of fact. Oh, by the way, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Now, can you, I just can't wrap my brain around that. Wait. The son of Paul's sister. The son of Paul. How old is this guy? The son of Paul's sister. Paul could be. He's been in ministry 20 years. But he's in his 50s. So Paul's in his 50s. Was this his older sister, younger sister? I don't know. The older sister, okay, the son could be uh, in his 20s, 30s. He could be in the Sanhedrin himself, and that's how he found out about it. Maybe he's a Pharisee in the Sanhedrin, and that's how he caught wind of it. Or it could be he's a Sadducee and was a part of the plan or on the periphery, but, oh, he just got convicted and felt so guilty. But this is my Uncle Paul who sent me that Christmas letter that one year. I can't, we don't know. How old is this guy? What is his name? Well, the passage goes on at least says young man, young man, young man, three times. Junior higher slash young teenager. Young man, young man, young. Young enough that the Chiliarch at some point is going to, when he's talking to the young lad, he wants to talk to, it says the Chiliarch, this is a big old Roman soldier with full gear, big old sword, helmet, and clank, clank, clank. And when the young lad comes to him, he grabs him by the hand. Just the imagery there. He, he's being tender. This is a young boy. Doesn't want him to be afraid. He grabs him by the hand, and it says he pulls him aside and just has this private little conversation with him. So we do know that Paul's nephew is younger here. How in the world he got privy to this 
secretive, dire, private information that they were going to kill Paul? I have no idea. God is amazing. God has his plants everywhere. And here's Paul's nephew. Could be that this is his sister who's still a Jew. And upon hearing, and when she got married, she probably married a zealous Jew. And when they found out that Saul became Paul and a Christian, they probably were a part of the family that just said, forget that, we can't, we can't talk to Paul anymore. He's dead to us. But God strategically, providentially has this nephew planted exactly where he wants him. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. I mean, he could have heard it and just said, oh, good, Paul deserves it. Yeah, I heard about him. I've never met my uncle. But the family's talked about him. He's a traitor. He deserves death. I mean, he could have responded that way. Some people do. But not him. He heard and he came. It sounds like immediate action. There was urgency. And he came and entered the barracks of and told Paul. This is another amazing thing. It's just so... Paul's uh, Luke is so matter of fact, and he entered the barracks, the barracks, Fort Antonia. It has a thousand Roman soldiers. How, how do you even have access to that? Sounds like it just waltzes in, waltzes by the Roman soldiers, waltzes by the guard, goes through the gate, undoes the locks and goes immediately to and knows where Paul is in this huge, massive castle with three floor stories. How did he pull that up? Well, that's the providence of God. God is leading this young man. Came and entered the barracks, found Paul somehow. And told Paul, Paul, here, here's a conspiracy. Here's 40 guys. They're going to try to kill you. And then Paul actually believes his nephew. Who knows when the last time, if ever, he's even seen his nephew. But he believes in verse 17. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, this is hilarious. Here's Paul. He is a prisoner. He's behind bars. He has no rights. Really, as a prisoner, he's in custody. And it says right here, Paul called the centurion and he starts telling him what to do. Hey, you, centurion, Mr. Garth, hey, watching me. Yeah, you, the guy in charge with the authority. Yeah, me, the prisoner. Here's what you need to do. And you need to do it now. It's like, aye, aye. That tells you what kind of person Paul was. They had seen enough, the Roman soldiers and the Roman commander had seen enough about Paul to know this man is different. This man is different. So this Roman centurion knew that. And so Paul immediately just calls one of the centurions and said to him, lead this young man to the commander, the Chiliarch, for he has something to report to him. Verse 18. And so there it is. The centurion heeds Paul. So he took him and led him to the commander, the Chiliarch, and said, just bolts in to a very busy man, Chiliarch. It's amazing how God intervened through everything, all the details here in the logistics. Paul, the prisoner called me, to him and asked me, this is hilarious. Yeah, Paul, the prisoner is telling me what to do and I'm obeying. I'm following his orders, boss. Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And then amazingly, the Chiliarch is willing to believe. Are you sure he's not a spy? Are you sure the little kid, the little teenager isn't lying? The little rotten skunk. How do you know? He didn't do any of that. Remember, I don't know if the last scene, remember the Chiliarch was, he had a spirit of fear in him about Paul. That's probably still an overriding emotion he has right now. Whoa. Okay, I just heard his testimony. He said that a resurrected guy from heaven appeared to him. Whoo, this guy is different. And then he hears this. He takes it at face value. There is no reason to assume that this person is lying. 
Verse 19, anything is possible with this guy named Paul. And the commander took him by the hand. There it is. Took this young man by the hand. Pulls him aside. Wants to hear it. Gives him privacy. So he's treating him with great respect. Credible plan. Began to inquire of him private. So they probably have a conversation. Okay, are you sure about this? Okay, who was... Who are the spokesmen? What did they say? Did they say anything else about the plan? That's what the inquiry was about. Doing this privately gets all, he's satisfied, he thinks he gets enough information. Now he can make decisions and act accordingly. And so at the end of verse 19, he says, uh, what is it that you want to report to me? Verse 20, and then he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council of the Sanhedrin. As though they were going to inquire, they were going to lie somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not... Listen to them. So here you've got Paul giving the Chiliarch orders. Do not listen to them. Paul, the prisoner, giving the Chiliarch order. Nobody gives the Chiliarch orders when he is on duty, save the governor and Caesar. And here's Paul, the prisoner, giving the Chiliarch orders and some little teenage boy. It's amazing. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Verse 22, the commander acts immediately. So he is a good leader. That's why he's a chiliarch and not an underling. He's decisive. He is confident. This is what we're doing. Here's a plan. He has uh, forethought. You can see it in all the details. He just makes a just a. A bunch of decisions very quickly. Uh, verse 22, therefore, the commander let the young man go. That was the just thing to do. Instructing him. This was this was very wise. Uh, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Be secret. Can you keep a secret? Because those 40 guys tried to keep a secret and th- that got out. That messed up everything. Can you keep a secret? Don't tell anybody what I've told you. As far as we know, that little boy kept his lips sealed where is that little boy will we see that little boy in heaven that'd be kind of neat so that's the inquiry inquiring as to the conspiracy as god providentially uses this young courageous young man paul's nephew number three so after the conspiracy the inquiry now the delivery the military delivery Verse 23. Now, keep in mind, this Roman uh, Chiliarch commander, he's a pagan. He's not a Christian, doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in Jesus, probably believes in false gods, probably engaged in all kinds of gross immorality. Corrupt worldview. He's even kind of a liar. Because we're going to see that in the letter that he writes. Nevertheless, God uses this person in a great way to protect the Apostle Paul. I was struck by that whole story is how God actually does use a pagan to protect God's people. And I was thinking, wow, I can think of times in my own life, even recently, where God used somebody who doesn't know Jesus, a total pagan, even a blasphemer, for the good of me or my family. That's amazing that God does that. And he does that here. Look at verse 23 and following. So the commander calls to him two centurions. Okay, these are Roman soldiers, tough guys, 
Uh, they're leaders in their own right, and they are in charge of 100 men each. So they've got some authority. He calls these two centurions. Could be the same ones from earlier in the story. And he says, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. 9 p.m. Pronto. We need 200 of your best soldiers ready to go tonight. Aye, aye, sir. We're going to go to Caesarea. Caesarea 60 miles away, going up north on the coast of the Mediterranean. Where's that? That's kind of headquarters of Judea. It's kind of the capital city. It is where the governor is, Governor Felix. He's the authority who represents Caesar. Herod's palace is there. Palatial mansions galore. 60 miles away. They've got to go on foot and on horse. It's going to take a while. That's where we're headed. 200 soldiers. So you've got 200 soldiers by 9 p.m. going to Caesarea. Along with the 200 soldiers, we need 70 horsemen. That's 270. Plus, we need 200 spearsmen. I think this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, or Greek anywhere. 200 spearsmen. These are soldiers who had javelins or spears. They were experts. You have 470 armed soldiers, trained professional soldiers, trained to protect, trained to kill. Almost 500. This would be half of all the men that this Chiliarch is entrusted with there at Fort Antonia, right next to the temple. 500 of his 1,000 soldiers. Probably hardly ever does this. So he knows the stakes are out. Why is he, is he overreacting? Why is the commander requiring so much for just one guy, the Apostle Paul, to, as an escort to take him 60 miles to Caesarea? Well, because this Roman commander has seen with his own eyes in the last 48 hours some crazy things. The first of which was in the temple when this all started, where there was a mob down below with these Jews who were, for the most part, unarmed. And he takes 200 of his Roman soldiers down there to try to stop the mob from killing Paul, and he, he's hardly successful. They are so hell-bent on anger and rage and death. He knows this is the mob he's dealing with. And that wasn't even orchestrated. That was spontaneous. This is a premeditated plan. This is going to be worse. We, we've got to take drastic measures. So that's why he's got almost 500 soldiers in this thing. And that's wise. Verse 24, they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on. So we need to put Paul on a horse too. So the idea is they're going to put Paul on a horse and have him surrounded by horses and have them surrounded by soldiers with horses and have them surrounded by soldiers with spears and javelins and have in the front the infantry and in the back the infantry. This massive entourage headed 60 miles to Caesarea in, in the dark of night. So that's the plan. It's actually a good plan. And he has to notify the authorities. Why are they going to Caesarea? Because that's where Felix the governor is. Uh, this commander realizes, you know what? It's out of my hand. I don't have the authority to deal with this anymore. I've done everything I can. I've exhausted all options. I can't scourge him. The Jews can't handle it. They're abusing justice. He's a Roman citizen. There's only one thing I can do. He, he's got to go to a higher authority than me in the land of Rome, and that is the governor. So he does the right thing. And so he acts accordingly. Verse 24, they were also to provide mounts to Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And so uh, Lysias Claudius, this is where his name is first revealed. Verse 25, he writes a letter. He wrote a letter having this form, and he was going to give it to a messenger in that horse was going to take off as soon as possible so that the message would get there in writing to Felix before the entourage of all these soldiers arrived the next day. 
And here's what, here's probably the gist, if not identical, to what Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix. This is an official, legal, government, private document. How in the world does Luke know this is what was said? Well, because God is sovereign. He's in control. There's a lot of different ways. Could have been that when Paul was on trial, Felix actually read this to Paul. Here's why you're on trial. Here's, here's the letter I got. Here's why you stand before me today. Could be. But this information eventually got to Luke, and through the help of the Holy Spirit, he wrote it down exactly as it was presented, at least the gist of it. Here's what he wrote in verse 26. Claudius Lysias, that's the Chiliarch, the commander, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Not just the governor. That's a respectful term. Not just a governor. He is an excellent governor, even though he's a terrible governor. We know. He, he reigned for seven years. Uh, he got into his position illegitimately, this Felix guy. He was actually born a slave, we know from history. Then his, his brother got in good with Claudius, the emperor. Oh, I got a brother, by the way. He's a slave. And uh, hey, can you help him out? Yeah, we can. So they did. Helped him out. That's what you do in politics sometimes, you know, help people out illegitimately. What can you give me? I'll show you favor. Well, that's what that's how he rose to power. So he's able to even get freedom as a born slave. And then he gets this privileged position of being a governor. That was huge. Over the area of uh, Syria and Cilicia. Judea. He reigned for seven years. History says he was a total thug. One historical writer said he ruled like a king after the manner of a slave because that's exactly what he was. In other words, he was a thug. He was known for squelching things out. He hated the Jews. He was not sophisticated at all. He wasn't trained in Roman law the way a born and raised free Roman was. So this Felix, he's very much of a questionable character. And yet there's this great respect. Uh, excellent governor. That's how you should greet those who are in authority. This is in keeping with Romans 13. We, there is no authority that exists apart from God. God's put everybody in authority and the, the, the position needs respect. And that's what Claudius is. He's a, he's a soldier. That's what soldiers do. They understand hierarchy. Aye, aye, sir. They know the order. And he preserves that legitimately and with integrity. The most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. Verse 27. Here's what he says. When this man, Paul, was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them in the temple with the troops, my troops, Roman soldiers, and rescued him. Lie. Kind of. Isn't like half of a lie like a really a lie? Anyway, part of a lie. I came upon the troops and rescued them. So in other words, everything that every mistake he made, he just conveniently, selectively leaves out. Like I tried to beat him almost to death even though I didn't know he was a Roman citizen and I shouldn't have done that. He, he fails to mention that. He Oh, he falsely accused him of being an Egyptian terrorist. Oops, I forgot to mention that. I came upon them with the troops and I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. He didn't know that. He learned that later. This is how human beings operate, by the way. We, we just lie. Tell, we got a bunch of truths, and they're just sprinkling there a bunch of half lies all over the place. But Christians are called to a higher walk of life. We need to communicate, talk, speak with integrity, right? Speak the truth in love. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4 to Christians, do not lie to one another. Or literally, stop lying to one another. Why would Paul say to a Christian congregation, stop lying to one another? Because Paul knew they were lying to each other. 
Because, you know what? Christians lie to each other. Stop lying to one another. Don't do that. That is not the Christian ethic. God has changed you, made you a new person. We speak truth. Be committed to it. Quit compromising. Don't live like the world. Tell the truth. So this is so typical. Verse 28. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their Sanhedrin. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law. Okay, that was true. But under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. That's true. And boy, this is huge because he is basically legally declaring Paul is not guilty from my point of view. Being the highest authority in the land, in this area, privia to this case, I declare him not guilty. What do you think, Felix? I want you to examine him. Verse 30. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. That's true. So this man is to be commended for his integrity of wanting to do the right thing. He, he has pretty much one job as a Roman soldier. He works for the government, and the government pretty much has one job. doesn't matter if it was a government today in America, on the other side of the world, or 2,000 years ago. A government primarily, from God's point of view, has one job, and that is to protect its citizens and punish evildoers. That's it. And this Roman soldier is pretty much doing his job. This is what he should be doing. Protecting someone who is innocent from evil. Verse 31. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders... Oh, I sent him... uh, Verse 30. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against him, I sent him to you, Felix, also uh, instructing his accusers to bring their charges against him before you. So they're going to have a formal court hearing verse 31 so the soldiers in accordance with their orders took paul and brought him by night to antipatris so all 500 soldiers they start marching out of the town as quiet as 500 roman soldiers can with all their metal clinging and horses pounding anyway and they're trying to sneak out of town away from these jews and they're headed to caesarea 60 miles away and they make it about 40 miles and then they take a break 40 miles that's a long way so this took many hours in the night they get to antipatris which was uh, a respite almost halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And then verse 32 says, the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they return to the barracks. So he relieves about half of his entourage. and says, okay, you guys, you can go back to Jerusalem, back to Fort Antonio. The rest of you guys, you're staying with Paul to protect him the rest of the way. I think we're uh, out of danger, imminent danger here. We're good. Verse 33, and when these had come to Caesarea finally, and they had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to Felix. And by the way, Felix is living in Herod's palace. Huge, massive. He's living it up. So that's where they are. So he reads the letter, and when he had read it, he asked for what province Paul was from. So, Paul, where are you from? What province are you from? What jurisdiction? Do I have the right to rule over your case? Basically is what he was asking. And Paul said, I'm from Cilicia. And then Felix said, okay, I can hear your case. That's legit. And we will do that. We will do that soon. Verse 35 said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also. Giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So he's once again going to isolate Paul, but keep him protected and probably give him some limited freedom as a prisoner under custody facing trial. So that is the delivery on behalf of. So you got to hand it to Claudius Lysias who actually, in the end, he did the right thing. And God uses, like I said, unbelievers at times to do the right thing. 
for our good, for his glory, but also because they have a conscience still. And many times they will operate in keeping with conscience. Being made in the image of God, it's called common grace. Common grace is the doctrine that bad people, unbelievers, can actually do good things because God is a gracious God and ultimately he is in charge. Well, I want to leave you with this in light of this narrative and story just to encourage your heart. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning how Paul was very discouraged and that was true of him many times in ministry. And just a reminder, if you want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 later or the whole book, you can just see how incredibly distraught and discouraged he was, even to the point of death, he says. Even to the point of death. I mean, when's the last time you felt that way, that bad, down in the dumps? I don't want to live anymore, Lord. That's a real human emotion, not ignored by God, especially when it happens to his people. He tends to that. He ministers to that. He provides comfort for that. And that's what I want to leave you with. We need encouragement. We need relief. We need help. We need If you are depressed, you are usually without hope. If you have no hope, what you need is faith. So you need to get faith. If you get faith that is supernatural and from God, then that will restore hope. That will bring encouragement. That will eliminate that depression. God has an answer to that very specifically. So just three things to encourage you with of how you can be encouraged, gain hope, and gain faith. And here they are. Uh, well, we need to be encouraged. I already said that we need faith and we need to, oh, get this. I need to add this. We also need to have the, the comforting voice of Jesus. Don't we? That's what Paul had. Cause we could be thinking, oh yeah, well, Jesus literally appeared to Paul. I mean, I would encourage, uh, have joy and straighten up and not fear. If Jesus came and visited me personally, that'd be kind of nice. Yeah, that's true. But we can literally, as Christians, we can have literally the comforting voice of Jesus in our life. So we need encouragement, we need faith, and we need the comforting voice of Jesus. And there's only one way to do all three. And guess what? It is in the Word of God. It's taking in the Bible. That's where, if you need faith, then you need to go to the Bible. Because Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes as a result of hearing the Word of God. That's the only place it comes from. I am discouraged. I am anxious. I have no, I am hopeless. Well, then you need faith. There's only one place. It's the word of God. You've got to have your nose in the word. You've got to be reading the word, meditating on scripture. This is how God speaks to us. I need the voice of Jesus in my life. There's only one place Jesus speaks. It is right here through his word in conjunction with the living spirit of God that lives in you. So you will gain, gain faith. You will hear the voice of Jesus Christ and you will also be encouraged as a result. And let me leave you with this verse. Go to Romans chapter 15. We'll close on this verse. So the book of Acts, and then right after that is Romans. Uh, we, we, we talked about how Paul had, just prior to where he's at now in the book of Acts, he had just recently written this book of Romans. So it's fresh in his mind. And he's, he's writing to Roman Christians. And in Acts, uh, Romans 15, sorry, Romans 15, uh, verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So at any given time, some Christians are going to be down and some are going to be strong. And we need to help each other, encourage one another. Very important. That's another way to be encouraged and lifted up. Surround yourself with godly believers 
who walk in the power of the Spirit, who love God, who are in the Word, who are committed to prayer. Surround yourself with those. Put yourselves in those communities and opportunities. Go to prayer times once a month on Sunday nights. Go to Bible study. Go to Sunday school. Be around Christians. That will encourage you. They will bear your burdens. Uh, Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. They, They will build you up. Uh, verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. He quotes from the Old Testament, and then here's what he says in verse 4. For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So we need to be reading the Old Testament, the Word of God, and we need to be reading all of the Word of God, uh, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. See, the, the Scriptures provide encouragement for you, for your soul. Encouragement, and then he ends, and it gives you hope. And that's where faith comes from. Be in the word of God, the living word of God that feeds your soul. It's it's milk to the soul. It's meat to the soul. It's how God speaks to us. It gives us faith, encouragement, hope. It sustains us. It helps us persevere in this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all those blessed, wonderful gifts and promises. With that, let's go to the Father and thank him for these wonderful things. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for the promise and the reminder from Romans that through Scripture, reading it, being exposed to it, understanding it, and then believing it, you promise to give us supernatural encouragement and hope. God, I pray for anybody here in our midst, in our congregation that maybe came in incredibly discouraged today or just had an incredibly depressing or discouraging week. Father, if they know you personally, Prick their heart with your Holy Spirit in light of the things that they have heard today from your word, that they might continue to go to the reservoir of the word for encouragement for their soul. We know that you're going to answer that prayer. Thank you for that wonderful, blessed gift. We commit our day to you. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.